love to have you take your Bibles and join me in Hebrews chapter 6 is where we'll be uh, very shortly. As we step into God's Word, I'll say more about kind of where we've been and where we're going here in a moment to help us get there. By the way, you'll need your sermon notes in the bulletin as well. Those will be a real help to you as we move along. But I want to begin by thinking with you about a moment in history when, when a message wasn't delivered, should have been delivered, and it changed the world. And um, I'm hoping not to spend too much time on it. I love these kinds of stories. Traveled with me back uh, 45 years or so ago to my junior high history class. No, really, I think it was there that I learned to really love history. I had a wonderful junior high history teacher who told stories so well. And I remember, I can hear his voice still telling about this moment. June 28th, 1914. If you know history, you know some things happened that day. That was the day that the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were assassinated in Sarajevo. Now, that was a big deal because the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the heir presumptive to the Austrian, let's see, Austro, wow, get it right, Jay, Hungarian throne. The day that they were assassinated, they were coming to town. They were going to speak at this um, dedication of a museum. And there were rumors of assassination plots running through town. And the police were on it. Everybody was on it. There was concern. Indeed, there were about two dozen people who had plotted for this moment to take these two out. Young. Uh, this day was uh, not only a national holiday celebrating a, a, a victory in battle from the 1300s. This was their 14th anniversary that day. Wow. So as they, the motorcade moved through town, people were on the side cheering, and the authorities were concerned. One assassin had a bomb with a timed uh, device on it to make it explode, threw it at the car, did it just right, but it hit the part of the car, bounced off, went into the car behind him and blew up. But it didn't do a lot of damage. That guy hurried up, took his cyanide pill that he was carrying, and ran to a bridge and jumped off into the river, intending one way or the other to drown himself. The cyanide pill was too old, made him vomit. The river, after a drought, was 13 centimeters deep. He, he, was, he survived later to be hanged. Well, the, the, they made it to the, where they were going, the, the, the museum to be dedicated, um, got back in the car, and were heading through town again. But because of the, the concern about all this, they changed the route. They changed the route so that any other would-be assassins wouldn't know where they were going. But nobody told the driver. Nobody told the driver. So when it came down to the path that was supposed to be taken, the driver turned right for some weird reason. Well, the person who was, that was the original route. Uh, one of the assassins was there thinking he's going to come. And then he heard the crowd long ways away and he went, well, that's up so much for that. Stepped out. I think it was a bar to catch a drink. And then he heard shouting outside and he stepped out and there's the car with the happy couple. At the moment, the car had stalled because the driver had been told, you're on the wrong road. He'd stalled the car and was going to back up. And of course, on that day, the assassin stepped up and there they were in a car that was stalled and fired the shot that some had said was the shot that started World War I, the Great War, the war to be in all wars. As my history teacher said, the, the match to gasoline happened because nobody told the driver. The, the message wasn't delivered. That's what we want to talk about today. Okay, the gospel message and the gospel method must anchor us. Over the last couple of weeks, as you know, this time of year, we always take time to remember our, what we're supposed to do as a church. Every fall, I take two or three sermons to say, let's remember. 
Let's remember who we are. Let's remember why we're here. Let's remember our, our charter as a church based right on the word of God. So this is week three. We have, we have talked about God's living word, his life-giving word, how that must root us. It must reverberate through every part of our church life. Every program, everything we do must be riveted to uh, the word of God. Last week, we talked about the church, God's messy church, big C church, little C church. That is the universal church, the local church. And I said to you last week, God loves the local church. Messy, messy as she is, we are so often. God loves the church. Christ died for the church. And we as believers should be vitally involved in the local church. I understand all the hurts and so on. I do. I've had them too. Uh, So I'm sympathetic to that. And yet I say, the local church. The local church. Today then, this third element, uh, the gospel message and the gospel method must anchor us. I'll remind you that next week, Dr. Tim Sigler will be in this pulpit. Uh, He is a dean and provost at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina, previously 18 years or so at Moody Bible Institute, coming to town to speak for us at a pastor's conference over in Yakima, and I asked him to come a couple days early and join us here. And he's going to be speaking about Yom Kippur. Can you imagine? The Day of Atonement. He's going to be in the Old Testament, and then he's going to go to Hebrews and, and show us how Christ fulfills the ultimate Day of Atonement. So I've already read his notes. Man, I'm coming. I want to hear it. It's going to be fantastic. Then the Sunday after that, we step into what will be a 29-sermon series through 2 Corinthians. Okay? Don't miss a day. I want to pray for us, that God will help us in our time in his word this morning. If you join me, please. Our Father, uh, this morning, once again, we come to you at this moment that we open the word of God, inviting, asking your help that we would hear, and not only hear with physical ears, but with, with open hearts, to receive the word of God implanted, which as James says, is able to save your souls. So Father, we ask that of you, that you would help us now to, to, to think and to listen. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word as it goes forth in our sister churches. And pray for the ministry this morning at Central Bible and at Grace Community Churches as others of our staff minister there. Uh, so, so encourage those folks this morning as well through these same texts as together we walk this journey of faith. So help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So on your sermon notes, I've given you a couple reminders. Uh, That's always at the top uh, of the first part of that page. I want to go down to today's text, and these will be the two places we will spend the majority of our time, Hebrews 6, and then we'll step over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 into chapter 2, and then uh, chapter 15 as well. Uh, based on what I want to do today. I mentioned here, and please pay attention to this, what I'm after. Churches often identify themselves and market themselves on all kinds of things. And I just give you some amazing buildings, catchy slogans, and cool programs. Uh, There's nothing wrong with cool buildings, nothing wrong with great programs or catchy slogans, nothing, unless, unless those things become the message and somehow overshadow the gospel, Okay. And so, so again, as God grows us and and, uh, other buildings and so on, wonderful, but it's never about the buildings. It's never about the slogans. It's never about the cool statements. It's never about the the lights and so on and so on. If people come and are involved in ministry and leave saying, what a great program or great church, there's a part of me that that is sad because I want them to leave saying, what a great Christ. What a great gospel. You understand? So yes, all those other things, wonderful. Uh, But, but but it must be, must be about Christ. So I move to that, that first element here as you look down your sermon notes. For the church, the Christ of the gospel is our anchor. 
and the heart of the gospel message. So I'm in Hebrews 6 along with you. It was a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, we were in this text as we were preaching through Hebrews. So some of this may be familiar to you. I hope it is. It means you paid attention a year and a half ago and you still remember, all right? I want to read Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, and then we'll talk about this together. The Christ of the gospel is our anchor, the word of God then as we hear it. The writer says this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all disputes, an oath is final for confirmation So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, that is this hope as a sure and steady anchor an anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Christ has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oh my goodness, I'm, my mind is going back with this to our exposition of Hebrews. I love, I love that, uh, that, that, that season that we spent, the months spent here, and this text uh, is so profound. Several things then I want to say. Book of Hebrews, as you remember, written by an author who is not identified. I know we have our favorites. Uh, you all let me know. It's Paul. No, it's not Paul. It's some, let it go. It's just not identified. Not the main point. But this book written to people who here have need of encouragement. You find it again at the end of chapter 10. You have need of encouragement. Some of you have suffered, he says to the, to the, those who receive this, uh, this letter. Uh, you have suffered. Some of you have suffered the loss of your worldly goods. And you need endurance. You need endurance. And so he's writing them a book to cause them to endure. And he gives them Jesus in all of his offices, prophet, priest, and king. That's what he does. This whole book is saying, I I know it's hard. I know it is. But look at Christ. Do you see who he is to you? Do you see what he's done? And so this little paragraph then as you see on your sermon notes, it's written for, for, for people in troubled times, and it's to offer strong encouragement. That's in verse 18, okay? Encouragement. How do, how do you encourage someone? And I mentioned here in your notes, uh, we often encourage people based on nice sentiments and wishful thinking. It really, if you come across a friend who's down, we're more likely to say, you know, hang in there, it'll get better. Well, maybe you don't say that. Uh, or, or, you know, I'm sure it won't be as bad as you think. You'll get through it. We say all kinds of things. I'm not saying those things are bad. Okay? They have a place. Hallmark cards are wonderful. I don't have stock in Hallmark cards. I'm just saying there's a point. However, that's not what the writer does. He, he goes somewhere else for strong encouragement. Instead of saying it's all going to work out, he already knows it's, it's not all going to work out great. Some of you suffered a lot. The prognosis might be bad. The diagnosis from the doctor might not be what you wish for. But I want to give you stronger encouragement than that. So this encouragement then that he's aiming at in verse 18 builds, he says, so that we might have this encouragement. He's building it on a story from history. And that's what verses 13 through 17 are all about. He goes back to 
how God dealt with Abraham. You remember from our, our studies in scripture through these years and our Christmas programs that continue to tell the gospel, uh, the Abrahamic covenant that really was first identified in, in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, as God promised Abraham land, seed, let his descendants and blessing those things and said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'll give you a son. And remember, he, that was the son of promise. And the whole journey that, that Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah, I went on uh, to, to see God fulfill that promise decades later. Decades after he gave it. You know, that promise repeated, of course, subsequently in Genesis, all the way up to the moment of the birth of Yitzhak, Isaac, the son of promise. Well, the point here in the text is God said it, and that should be enough. I'm going to give you a son. He gave his word. And then, to, to help Abraham, not because God had to do it, he, he promised not only his word, he gave an oath. He swore by himself. And as the writer says, people uh, make an oath by something greater than them, which was a significant challenge for God because there's no greater being. So we, we put our hand on a Bible or something. So help me, God. The point of that, of course, is to say, to, to say I'm, really, I'm telling you the truth, and I'm appealing to one greater than I am. That's what the, the, the point of that paragraph is. But God, when he says, listen, I gave you my word, and I'm, I swear by, well, me, the greatest being, I will do what I said. In other words, he, it's like he, he double reinforced it so that Abraham would have strong encouragement. He'll do it. I know he will. And you'll remember then, of course, from our study and your own study of the Bible, Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul, of course, in Romans, building on all of that. So here, this writer, do you remember this moment? God made a promise. He made a promise. He made a promise. He made an oath. He's never going to give up. He'll keep his word. And so again, then into verse 18, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, again, you remember from our study of this text, perhaps we talked about anchors a bit. I think I brought in somebody's anchor. It was a small one because the big ones I can't bring. You've, maybe you've been in the Navy, you've seen these massive anchors. And, and the anchors are mentioned, of course, four times in the New Testament, only four. Uh, three times in Acts 27, when Paul is on his sailing journey going to Rome and here, this is the only other time anchors are mentioned. That's really a big deal for reasons I'll mention in just a minute. All right? So pay attention for that. It's mentioned here only that other time. The anchor of the soul. In troubled times. In times of discouragement. Or need. Or illness. The challenges of life. What anchors your soul? What do you, what do you hang on to when all else is burning well, this writer is saying, yeah, I know exactly what you need. You don't need me to come along and say, chin up. You don't need me to give you a lollipop. You need me to bring you Jesus. You need me to remind you of the gospel, the Christ of the gospel, who anchors your soul. That's, that's what you need. And so that's what he's doing in this whole book of Hebrews. I want to just remind you of Jesus, your great prophet, priest, and king, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater even than Melchizedek, this, this ancient story as we studied, and I'm not going to step into today, this king of righteousness, king of peace, 
Christ is the greater one of those, the anchor of the soul. I mentioned, of course, anchoring is a science, absolutely. The right anchor, the right chain, holding power, all of those things on your sermon notes. But that's, that's, what, that's what this writer intends Christ to be to the believing heart. An anchor of the soul so that it, when the wind is blowing and you're not sure which way to go, you, you are holding on to Christ even as Christ is holding on to you. It goes both ways. Okay? Christ has entered that, that place behind the veil, the curtain, right into the presence of God. His body, of course, crucified on the cross as he died in our place, paying for our sin, a substitute for us, dying in our place. His veil, that body torn, as we remember in communion, that, that was symbolized, of course, the veil of the temple torn, so Christ's body torn, wounded for us, broken to the point of death. Christ has entered heaven like that anchor, it's like the anchor is, is God's gone right into the presence of God and the other part anchored to you, a believer. That's kind of the picture here. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Christ is. Hang, so hang on, hang on. I mentioned why that matters, that it's here in Hebrews. And of course, uh, you um, might remember the story. Um, we believe from textual Indications that this letter was written to believers in Rome in that first century, all right? And interestingly, in some of the catacombs beneath the city of Rome, there's one section in particular where early believers met. And there on the walls, along other Christian symbols, are etched no fewer than 50 uh, examples of anchors carved into the stone by early believers who worshiped there. And I can just imagine this text... Hebrews, being read maybe by candlelight or lantern light there in a dungeon, so to speak, as believers from the first century worshiped there. And somebody had this letter from somebody they knew and read this text. And people said, yes, yes, he's my anchor. Meeting here in the dark, people I know being hauled off and, and, and suffering for Christ, he is the anchor of my soul. So I'm saying to all of us, certainly by my bigger title, the gospel message and the gospel method must anchor us. Christ, the Christ of the gospel is the anchor of our soul. It, it must always be about him. It must always be about Christ. Ministry, life, words of encouragement, your very heartbeat must always be Christ, Christ alone. Now, I want to move then to our second section. Usually we stay in one text, and we will certainly do that as we get to 2 Corinthians. But I want to go to, sorry, as we get to, yeah, 2 Corinthians, I want to go to 1 Corinthians today. Chapter 1, and I want you to see, uh, just in, in, a, in a brief way, how Paul takes that message that we just looked at, Christ of the gospel, and employs it here. 1 Corinthians, very likely written much earlier than most of the other books in the New Testament. But this gospel method, using the gospel message, is, is used here for good things. Okay, so you come to 1 Corinthians 1, and we're making a big leap, I realize, from Hebrews 6. We could stay there the rest of the morning uh, for our good. But I come to 1 Corinthians 1, uh, to give an example of what we're speaking of, the, the, the letter to, First Corinth, to the church at Corinth, as you recall, um, we'll talk more about in two weeks, um, it's a pretty messed up church. You'll remember they had problem after problem that we'll chronicle in a moment. But as Paul begins a letter to them, I want you to notice, I've given you a list there of the texts that I'm going to read. Really am. I, I'm going to read those. 
texts that are listed here uh, under that second heading. What do you give struggling, hurting, sinful people? What do you do? So 1 Corinthians 1 then, I'm going to start at verse 4, and let's hear the word of God uh, speak to this issue. So Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Fantastic paragraph to lead into a letter where he's going to address significant issues. He starts by saying, I know God has his hand on you. I know you belong to him and I know God will be faithful. And you can just hear the apostle rolling up the sleeves of his his, uh, robe because he's getting ready to jump into some stuff. As indeed he begins to here, uh, starting into verses... um, Well, verses 10 and 11, you see what's going on. I appeal to you, brothers, he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And then he begins to describe this. Some of you follow this leader. You say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Chuck Swindoll guy. I'm a John MacArthur guy. I'm a this guy. Yeah, well, I follow just Jesus. And, and off he goes, and he addresses them on the issue of, of divisiveness in the church. And he says, dear friends, this ought not to be so. It ought not to be so. But he does this. He sets himself up by addressing the gospel. You see again, verses 17 and 18. Again, just following that list of texts, I want you to see the gospel rooting them and rooting this message. Okay. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Paul says, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the word of the cross or the preaching of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved present tense, it is the, it is the power of God. And, and here again, before I move on to the next, um, Paul says, in verse 17, I, I don't want to just preach in such a way that you walk away saying, what an amazing preacher. Paul was trained in rhetoric. Oratory was a big deal, and he was a well-trained man, okay? So he could have easily wowed people with his speech. He is not saying, I purposely preach poor sermons. That isn't the point. So we'll see that again, uh, echoed uh, elsewhere, chapter 2 and into 2 Corinthians as well. He has similar things. His point is, my goal when I preach is to point people to Jesus. When people leave, I want them to say, what a great gospel, what a great savior. I don't want them to just leave saying, what a great apostle. I, I didn't die for their sins. I can't save them. So I don't want, Paul would say, I don't want them just to say, oh, what a great eloquent person. No, that isn't it. It's Christ they need. It's Christ that the, that the hearers need. The readers, years later, us, that's what we need, is Christ, the gospel, Christ of the gospel. He says, I don't want to empty the cross of Christ of its power, not that he'll diminish the cross, but that he could step in front of it and, and, take, and take preeminence, so to speak, take first place. He doesn't want to do that, uh, not a bit. Chapter 1, then, going down to verses uh, 26 to 31, the latter part of that 
chapter. Read all of it for your own good and edification. But the last paragraph then in chapter 1, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That sounds like something of an uh, insult, perhaps. Hey, guys, you're not that great in, in any of those categories. But, but off he goes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him or by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you hear, do you hear the preeminence of Christ here? The gospel. It's about Jesus. All the other things people can, can talk about and get divided about, run down that rabbit trail, this cool program, that amazing uh, music set or whatever, as much as I love those things, all of it. Christ, Christ, it's Christ. So into chapter 2. And I, he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Uh, Same point as I said a moment ago. Paul was not a bad speaker, though some said perhaps that he was. He was trained. He He was a skilled speaker, as we see in his writing. But his point is, being a cool speaker isn't my point. At the end of the day, if people are not hanging on to Christ, what have I done? That is my goal. That is the that is the crown. I want people to be connected with Jesus. If they're going to come hear uh, this speech, it's because they I want them to to come because they need Christ, and they leave saying, "What a great Savior! What a great Redeemer is ours!" That's what I'm after. Paul says, "I'm not after them saying." What, a, what, a, what an amazing speech I just heard. Well, I think, I think that's good. Now, I want to step then on the way. I want to journey with you to chapter 15. But I want you to turn the pages slowly. Okay? This part that we've just read is kind of the setup for what's coming. So in chapter 3, he's going to address those divisions again. Human divisions. People polarizing about things that are, in the very least, secondary and he, he addresses this with the gospel. Chapter 4, he talks about the ministry of the apostles and why it's unique. There were those who were challenging the apostles, saying, hey, we got a message from God too. And he's saying, hold on. No, we were appointed by God himself. Apostolic authority is a big deal in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. We'll see that in the months ahead. Apostolic authority. Paul received the gospel. He didn't make it up. It was received by revelation from Jesus Christ. So chapter 5, he addresses sexual immorality right there in the church. The people were so proud of themselves because they were all, you know, kind to everybody. Well, kind is wonderful, he says, but man, this, this can't be happening. He addresses sexual immorality in the church. Lawsuits among believers in chapter 6. Remember, he's, he's doing all this based on the foundation of chapter 1 and 2, where he says it's about Christ. Issues of marriage, um, money, 
food offered to idols, all these principles and things that were, were mad, really mattered about specifics in that early century, things that believers can choose to do or not to do, including things that might be sin for one person or another person doesn't have that conscience issue, idolatry, my goodness sakes, types of worship, spiritual gifts, the messiness of all of that, and you come to chapter 15, quick survey, I realize. But I want you to see how he, how, where he's going as he finishes addressing all those problems. It's not by accident, okay? So he builds a foundation of the gospel. He addresses all these messy things. And then in chapter 15, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. You, you see the bookends? I started by talking about Christ. It's all about him. Now we're going to talk about all the details where the gospel is applied to life. And, and then we're going to put the book in, Don, the icing on the cake. I want to take you back to the gospel. And so I read, to the gospel I preached to you, that is, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach, unless you believed in vain, that is, without results. It wasn't saving faith. You signed up because you thought it was a good place to be, not saving faith. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, you can go chat with some of these guys. Go for it. Hmm. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, mark of an apostle, by the way, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That is, he had a past, didn't he? The apostle Paul had a past. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. And then he goes on to talk about the resurrection. And he ultimately says, therefore, my dear friends, be immovable. Hang on. Don't give up. Um, so, so he begins with the gospel. It's the foundation. He addresses problems with the gospel. And then he reminds them of the gospel again at the end. He keeps saying, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about him. Now, sometimes when people hear uh, discussion of the gospel, the story of Jesus, they end up saying, yes, I know, that's how you get into the family of faith is by believing the gospel. But then don't you kind of need to, I mean, you know, move on. And the Bible over and over again says, move on? What are you talking about? You don't ever move on from the gospel. You don't ever move on from Jesus to something more, you know, deeper. What do you mean Deeper. Come on, stop it already. It's Christ. It's Christ from beginning to end. From the day you hear the gospel and believe it and are saved all the day, all the way until you close your eyes in death. It's always about the Christ as ruling and reigning in your heart. It's always about him. So move on from there, oh, to your own peril. So I, if you look at your sermon notes, a couple of things I want to mention here. Second bullet point, I've already said the first I think, what do you give struggling, hurting, sinful people? The gospel is the answer. But, but we use a term around here often 
that I, I explained just a bit. That is the term gospel error. Paul has corrected problems with the gospel. He concludes with gospel hope. Those are little fill-ins there if you haven't caught them already. The entire book is filled with gospel error, not anger or shame or fingering your face lectures or comparisons or guilt or any of the other favorite methods of helping people change. Paul addresses life change with the gospel, not with guilt. He doesn't just yell at him. Just so you know, very few heart changes ever come when, when you yell at somebody. Do you ever notice that? Yeah, anger rarely changes another person's heart. Burning the building down, all kinds of things like that do not really change the hearts of people. And that's why here he's coming back again and again to the Christ of the gospel who alone can change anybody's heart. You can change behavior by yelling and kicking and screaming, but probably not their heart. Inside, they're kicking just as loud. They just don't display it the same way. Same thing for us. A lot of times in our efforts to make life changes, self-help, we often come up with cool methods. Sometimes you need methods. I get it. To, To bring outward change, you might stop a certain behavior, but until Christ changes your heart, Well, the behavior might change. The longing for that thing is still there. See? So Christ alone has that key to change a person's heart and to change what you love, to change the want to, the will. So that's why Paul, from beginning to end in his preaching, he says it's about the gospel. It's about the Christ of the gospel. Now, gospel heir then means that in a church, there there is an equal emphasis on truth and grace. These two must be combined. I mentioned here John 1, 14 and 17. Those are two texts that describe Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What is it? Full of grace and truth, full of both. And again, uh, in verse 17, the law was given through Moses, John says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And you can percolate on this a bit. There's a, this Sunday, of course, is the first day that the community group notes are back. If you're in a community group, um, those notes are going to be what you look at this week in your group. Okay, And one of those I mentioned, something about having you think about what happens in a church if you, if you hang on to one and the other one gets short shrift. Truth and grace. And this is, this is not always easy, but sometimes you have a church that really anchors into the grace part and the truth sometimes goes down. That's, I think, kind of like the church at Corinth. We don't want to address issues of sin. That wouldn't be, you know, very nice. We're just going to grace all over them and set the truth aside. Other churches do it the opposite way. Oh, yeah, buddy, we're going to deal with truth. And there's kind of this teeth-clenched moment, kind of short on grace. But I'll tell you what, we're going to get it right. Get it right or you're out, okay? We're going to love Jesus. Do it now. There, that's effective. Well, no, it isn't. So, so truth, truth might still be truth, but if it's a baseball bat, we, we got a challenge here, got a problem. Jesus came, he didn't, we weren't short on truth, but he was equal grace. Grace and truth, grace and truth. So, so a church, I believe, following in the footsteps of Jesus must seek to emulate that, full of grace and truth. Both must be held on to. And I think as we deal with 
God's life-giving word defining us. We're talking about that and God's glorious and messy church. I think the first part, uh, the, the word of God would, would probably fit into that truth category, though I didn't use that, uh, that title in preaching three, uh, a couple weeks ago. Then the church part where we talked about how we support and care for each other, that would probably fit into that grace category. But both of these must be together. I like this to think about gospel air. It's what you breathe. It's when you breathe free because you know that Jesus is here and he's caring for us and we're hanging on to his truth. And we're loving each other. And we don't get it right all the time. Oh, I know that. I mean, as a church or us, right? We don't always get it right. But, but in, in a place where there's gospel error, it's a place where you can deal with truth in a grace-filled atmosphere. You, you don't have to be afraid to say, hey, I got it wrong. Because you know that in response to truth, there's ample grace one to another. Um, you also know that there's truth being spoken because without truth being spoken, what is this grace thing? Uh, kind of spineless. So both of these, I'm saying, are needed to make gospel error live in a church. And so I explain some of that here. Now, I want, to, I want to go down with you to that section called responding to God's word and just kind of remind us of some things as we kind of pull our thoughts together here. So returning to the analogy of anchors, yeah, in this world adrift, and even churches adrift, you know, um, I don't know everything that's going on in our community um, because I'm mostly here, um, but, but others of you are, are uh, contacting other places more than I, but I know that even in this, this world that's adrift, antagonistic to the gospel, so in many cases today, churches are adrift too, stepping away from biblical truth, disturbing to you and to me. Christ is the anchor. The Christ of the gospel, and that leads you into the whole discussion of what's true and right. Gospel standards as it apply to life, the word of God. For the local church, the gospel and the gospel method must anchor our lives in our collective ministry. That's right, flavored by the gospel. For Paul, the gospel message affected deeply, deeply affected his methods. So we're not, we don't need to try to be cute in every place. Um, Again, I'm not against innovation, not against new stuff, not against cool art, not against, don't give me the whole list. But I'm simply saying to all of us, all of those things must never be done in such a way that they become preeminent. This makes sense? Christ must have first place. It must always be about him, that when people come and then when people go, that they're saying, what a wonderful savior, what a wonderful scripture this is that has permeated that congregation. That, that really is a goal. There's a story told, um, it's in one of Charles Spurgeon's books, probably more than one. But it's, it's reflecting on a time when he was young, and he stepped into a church where his grandfather was preaching. Try that. Spurgeon, of course, um, back in 1800s. But, but his grandfather was preaching. He was a young man, stepped into a church, grandpa's up there, and grandpa knew he was a budding preacher. And grandpa stopped to say this, this young man may preach the gospel better than I do, but he will never preach a better gospel. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful sentiment that has echoed down through a lot of years now. It may be preached better, but it will never be a better gospel than the gospel of Jesus. So these three weeks, then, what I, I've wanted to say to us as a church, we've got to remember our bearings. God's life-giving word 
must, it absolutely must define us. The word of God reverberating through every program, everything we do, every conversation. God's glorious and messy church must sustain us. God intends that his people be together and breathe life by the spirit of God and the word of God to each other. Must shape us. God's intent. And then, of course, today, the gospel method, message and the gospel method must anchor us in. All of that points to Christ, the anchor of our soul. Now, next week, Tim Sigler. The week after that, 2 Corinthians. I hope that you know Christ today, whoever you are. I hope you're holding on to him. I hope that as a, as a believer, if you know Christ as your Savior, I hope your arms are wrapped around him as the anchor of your soul, even in troubled times. I'd love to pray for us as we go. Would you stand with me, please, as we, as we do that? Our Father, I thank you that you know every person who has come in here today. You know our life circumstances, our needs. You know right where we are with you. And I pray that even today you would pull each of us a step closer, wherever we're at. Some perhaps this morning or throughout the day who will walk into these doors who don't know Christ as their Savior just yet. Maybe today is the day that they will say yes to the Christ of the gospel. For those of us who know Jesus already, we've trusted Christ as our Savior from sin, Christ in him alone. Uh, Father, again today, would you, would you anchor us deeply with you? Uh, our arms around you, our arms around the cross, the gospel, finding our hope in no other place, no other, no other thing, that you would be indeed first, preeminent, Christ first place. May that be so for Sunset Bible Church. And as we step alongside Central Bible and Grace Community, may that be so in those churches as well. All of this for your praise. And thank you, Father. We're grateful for the morning in Jesus' name. Amen.